0: low energy. I actually saw people trying to leave, um, and and people leaving early, even before he was done. He's still speaking now. Uh, And and then they, I think, perhaps a little concerned that the hall hall would empty out too much. They actually started preventing people from leaving, so now they're no longer allowing people to leave. Season 3, Episode 7, The Prosecution Rests. Welcome to Capital Insurrection Report podcast dedicated to news and analysis regarding the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol. I'm Scott Kuhn. The introduction to this episode was provided by Jonathan Carl, who was reporting from Mar-a-Lago, where former President Donald Trump was announcing his intention to run for the nomination of the Republican Party in the 2024 presidential election. Somehow, this announcement which was attended by, um presumably, many of Trump's most loyal supporters. I'm sure that in Trump world, these were very sought-after tickets. Nonetheless, somehow, it turned into a hostage situation, where, after his speech began to turn into a rambling morass of the usual kind of weird and occasionally paranoid and oftentimes off-topic rants many of the people decided apparently to leave and so security blocked the doors in a presumable fire code violation to prevent them from leaving so i feel like this is a, very much the situation the republican party is in today they may want trump to leave uh, after these midterms particularly Nonetheless, he has locked the doors, it has turned into a hostage situation, and none of them can leave. Right, this episode, I will be talking mainly about the uh, trial uh, against the first tranche of Oath Keepers accused in the seditious conspiracy case. Also, I will be focusing on a number of different issues, to include the midterms. Uh, what the possibility of a the end of the seditious case, this conspiracy case might mean for other defendants, and also a profile of a, the second dismissal that has been issued in the January 6th series of cases. For the longest time, there had only been one dismissal of a Mr. Kelly from New York, and now we have seen a second dismissal. But first, before we get into that, let's go through the numbers. Uh, it's been a couple of episodes since the last tally, so I will uh, again, you know look at the, where we stand with the cases sourced as always about from sedition track. There have been a total of 909 individuals charged, an increase of 16 since the last tally. There have been a total of 405 indictments, no change there. Six deceased, no change there. Two dismissals, up one. Talk about that in a moment. One acquittal, same as always. 481 convictions, an increase of 29 since the last tally. And 317 sentencings, an increase of 22 since the last tally. So once again, convictions and sentencings, both outpacing New arrests. So, given that we've had a rare dismissal, I'm going to examine the case of this defendant, um, which in the end seems a bit unsatisfying to me. As, uh, by the time I was, I was done looking through everything, it raised as many questions, more questions actually, than I was able to answer. This defendant is a Donald John Smith of Lindenwald, New Jersey, who uh, is a UPS worker uh, working out of Lawnside, New Jersey. According to public records, he is a registered voter and lives in a modest two-bedroom townhome in Lindenwald. Uh, according to court documents, which listed his unredacted address, I believe he is 53 years old. Though I haven't actually been able to uh, verify that, other than by open-source methods, there's no reason why anyone would have been following this case particularly closer closely. Uh, hashtag Donald Smith. His arrest warrant was issued on July 28th, 2021, and listed four charges. Entering or remaining in a restricted building or grounds unlawfully. Disorderly or disruptive conduct in a restricted building or grounds. Violent entry and disorderly conduct on Capitol grounds. And parading in a Capitol building. So, uh... With regard to, like, you know, parading defendants, slightly more higher level than a lot of, you know, most of the parading defendants, but still uh, not someone who's looking at serious time. So I went through Court Listener and looked at all the relevant documents uh, I was able to pull up. On September 21st, 2022, there's this entry. Quote, the court grants pre-trial services request to modify the defendant's conditions of release to add that he must comply with home visits. Now, also on his, uh, there's a box that's checked uh, to indicate that from the very beginning, uh, this was someone with a mental health history. It doesn't say that, but uh, again, from the very beginning, this is someone who's flagged as a um, who, someone who is of more psychi- psychiatric, psychological interest than the average defendant uh, who must comply with uh, psychiatric requirements of pretrial services. So, as of October 2022, it looked like this case was moving forward to trial. On October 13th, the defense asked for a 60-day continuance based on new discovery. And on October 25th, the trial date was moved to January 18th, 2023. So, chugging along. But then on October 28th, Matthew Graves, the U.S. Attorney for D.C., filed a motion to dismiss without prejudice. Of course, that means charges could be brought again. On November 3rd, Judge Lamberth granted that motion. So, what do these entries in the docket tell us? Well, There was a competency evaluation ordered a year ago. Uh, It was claimed that Mr. Smith was unresponsive in court. And, again, they don't want to be overturned on appeal. And so they always have to uh, look at issues of competency when these issues arise. Sometimes this is just people who have odd behavior. But in Mr. Smith's case... Uh, I believe there's evidence to suggest that he has documented history of mental health issues, and so therefore, uh, this odd behavior in the courtroom, uh, we don't know whether it's mental or physical, some sort of physiological disorder, um, whatever it was, he was ordered to undergo a competency evaluation. Now this is a 30-day outpatient competency analysis, Um and pretrial services had also been having a number of problems with this defendant uh, who had apparently been refusing home visits and, you know, again, unresponsive in court. Now, none of this is really unusual in and of itself, but it may be relevant in some way to his dismissal. Uh, Part of the issue here, though, of course, is that uh, given the sensitivity of the courts with regard to these kinds of things, you wouldn't necessarily know if they decided to, you know... um, proceed in in a way where, uh, you know, for some reason, I don't know, maybe maybe he is uh, in a mental health facility right now. Uh, Again, that is a possibility. I'm I'm not sure that's it. Uh, I ultimately settle on something else. But this is a a bit of a problem child, someone with mental health history uh, who's been uncooperative with pretrial services and uh, apparently um, not acting appropriately in court. Although, Being unresponsive is probably better than uh, the behavior of some of these defendants. Now, I'll put a link to the uh, court listener page for Mr. Smith in the show notes. If there are any legal eagles out there who are able to spot anything. But there's no real clue in the record that really indicates, you know, definitively, one way or another, what's up. So, um... There may be, the other possibility, besides something to do with the competency or sanity, is that there's some kind of technical issue with the case. Now, that's not very satisfying for me, but there you have it. This case has been dismissed without prejudice, and, you know, I don't really know why. It doesn't say why uh, in the order. Now, again, there's nothing making this reason for dismissal explicit, um, what I was able to find is, is a little more speculative, just reconstructing uh, you know, the case through the statement of facts. And there's no, there's no, nothing in the uh, record, in the court records, to indicate that this theory I've constructed uh, actually accounts for, for what has happened. Um, I, I do expect eventually we will learn definitively. So, the possibility is related to the request for a continuance on October 13th, right? So, the, go- the government gave this defendant new video evidence, and that's why they, they got the continuance. Pretty routine, new evidence, the defense and the defendant gets a chance to review it. Looking at the photos in the statement of facts, the person who's identified as Smith appears to have been remained covered uh, for the entire period that they were in the Capitol, now, uh, he is wearing a scarf and a, a red knit cap. Now, the video evidence doesn't appear to be really great. Um, they went through, and I'll talk about this in a moment, um, it, it looks like him, uh, but really, you know, could be any middle-aged man of, of roughly the same height and build, at least with regard to the CCTV footage inside the Capitol. Now, the original identification was not made by sedition hunters, significantly. This was uh, made by co-workers. So, uh, on January 12, 2021, a person identified only as Witness 1 reported the following. Quote, I work with a man who showed up with pictures and video of him and others storming the White House. He says he was in Nancy Pelosi's office and that it was the best day of his life. I do not condone these actions and would like to report him. His name is Donald Smith, and we work at UPS in Longside, New Jersey. I have a picture of him. Thank you in advance for your help. So obviously a co-worker made a little bit of a misstatement there. Not the White House. Not the first time Uh, we we have seen someone make that mistake, right? Um, Storming the Capitol, nonetheless. Uh, Thank you to the co-workers of Mr. Smith in alongside New Jersey, for doing the right thing, although I can imagine that sometimes some of these people they might have been you know i I don't know <laughs> some people' it's like if you've got the proper co coworker and you found find out that they've stormed the Capitol there there might be people who'd really welcome that opportunity because um you know particularly if they're they're always spouting about random conspiracy theories at work, it you know yeah. Makes sense why someone might want to pick up the phone. The FBI also received more information from another witness, who's a co-worker, identified as Witness 2 on January thirteenth, two 2001. Quote, This man's name is Donald Smith, works at UPS Longside, New Jersey. End quote. Witness 2 provided a photograph, uh, which, quote, appears to be a photo of a television showing news coverage of the January 6, 2021 Riot at the Capitol building. End quote. Now, this photograph is actually pretty clear and is uh, evidently, it, it looks like Smith, right? That ID by this witness, uh, to whom Smith is known, seems pretty solid. And not only that, they've actually provided a photo of a television uh, with Mr. Smith's uh, face on it, uh, taken from January 6th. Okay, here's where it gets weird. In a footnote, the government says, that they've not been able to speak with witness to. Um, This is really odd, I think. The statement of facts, it says that this witness is, quote, known to law enforcement, so they know who it is, but for some reason, the government claims they've not been able to interview the witness, which most assuredly they would want to do. So everything in the government's case seems to add up to this point, even with that little problem. Um, The government gets further confirmation from another co-worker, Witness 3, who claims to uh, have recognized the the scarf that Donald Smith is wearing as one that Smith regularly wears at work. And moreover, um, these witnesses describe Smith as gloating about having stormed the Capitol. Uh, Another witness, a co-worker, Witness 4, saw the person on TV footage and uh, took pictures of the screen identifying this person as Smith. But there's another footnote in the Statement of Acts. The government hasn't been able to interview Witness 4 either. So this points to some kind of problem with the evidence. Two of the four witnesses, co-workers of Mr. Smith, apparently haven't been able to be interviewed by the government. So that seems a little concerning. Um... But then, as the government develops their case, uh, based on this identification, the government were able was able to use Capitol surveillance footage to track Smith in the Capitol. Uh, they actually find the moment you we know, they're actually from the videos, the television screen, uh, able to determine where Smith was in the Capitol uh, in the news footage, and then relate that to Capitol CCTV footage. Um, but this footage itself isn't quite as good. Um, you know. Is the person in the CCTV footage the same person who's identified by witnesses one through four? You know, I, I think so, but again, two of these witnesses haven't been interviewed by the government. So somehow, though, this information is used to obtain a warrant from T-Mobile that, uh, again, also places Smith in DC. But if this identification is somehow suspect, then that would also draw that warrant into question. So, where are we? Well, there's two possibilities. Again, some kind of confidential mental health issue or some kind of health issue uh, that just doesn't show up in the court record. Or, second possibility, there's some kind of problem with the government's uh, evidence. Now, the government makes this kind of leap here, right? They see this picture on screen of news footage that's provided by the witnesses. Um, and they then use this to go to CCTV footage from the Capitol at roughly the same period of time. You know, I think they're the same person, but it is possible that this is a weakness in the case, possible that there's a w- reasonable doubt. I mean, a middle-aged man who face is covered and is wearing a red redneck cap you know, that, that's, that can be any number of people. Now, arguably, uh, it is. he's also wearing a backpack, and the backpack itself is distinctive. So, you know, I'm not quite sure that that is a problem, um, except that the f- backpack doesn't appear in the, the, the screenshot uh, or the photo of the TV that's provided from the witness, so you, you can't necessarily get his identification from that. So again, could be just this kind of technical problem, right? So this problem with the evidence means that there actually wasn't probable cause to get the T-Mobile warrant in the first place. So I don't know, but you know, I'll provide the link to court listener, but again, kind of remarkable. we've had yet another dismissal, but you know again, that there's a, that's this government success rate is still pretty darn good, right? They've charged 909 cases. Two of them have been dismissed. Now, to my mind also, uh, the case from Mr. Smith also underlines the work of sedition owners. This is a case that it looks like the government developed on their own uh, without any work from reliance on the work from open source intelligence sleuths. Particularly early on, whenever they used sedition hunting work, uh, it tends to appear in the court documents, and this is an earlier court document. Uh, maybe some of the later ones, uh, they seem to hedge this a little bit, and you know try to make it look like it's been more depend- independently developed by the government itself. But here I think that there's no evidence to suggest that um, this was a case that really relied on the work of sedition hunters uh, particularly much at all, and why would they? Right, I mean, this is someone who's identified by the government. You know, he's given his the hashtag, which is basically his old name. So that's how people came to this case through the work of the, gov- the government when they developed the case. Um, so hopefully, the government is going to be able to to uh, fix this mistake. But I do think it's noteworthy that who screw up is this? Well. It's it's the government's. It's not anyone in the open source uh, sleuthing community. This was something that the government did on their own, um, and you know, again, it is a lot of work, and this was a, a particularly busy phase in uh, the January sixth cases. Um, but nonetheless, you know, uh, it may be that this is a result of a regrettable mistake on the part of law enforcement. Um, but again, it might not be too late. You know, uh, if the issue with the evidence is resolved somehow, uh, if they find uh, another basis to make the ident- identification, again, assuming that that is the problem, they find these two witnesses with whom they have, they have not spoken, um, then, you know, they may be able to arrest them. You know, another possibility that, that I also did consider is maybe it turned out that, you know, somehow... Uh, The government made a mistake, like handling the evidence, like maybe witnesses uh, two and four are actually uh, miscategorized. Maybe this is all just two persons, Um, you know, we don't know. But whatever the issue it is, because it was dismissed without prejudice, the government could charge Mr. Smith again. All right, so next we'll turn to the Oath Keepers Seditious Conspiracy Trial the first batch of defendants. So this trial is wrapping up this week, or at least the uh, this part that occurs uh, inside the courtroom before deliber- deliberations, the open part that the press can attend, is uh, wrapping up. So jury deliberations are scheduled to run the week of Thanksgiving. Um, and, you know, hard to say how long that's going to take. Now sadly there is no call in line of course but I've been following the case by reading the threads of several reporters who've been live tweeting from the courtroom. So I do want to give a shout out and recognition to these reporters. Roger Parloff of Law Affair, Brandy Buckman of Daily Kos, Ryan J. Riley of NBC, Jordan Fisher of WUSA 9, and Kyle Cheney of Politico. So can't really post all their threads here in the show notes, uh, but you'll be able to find all of their excellent reporting on the trial at the websites of their respective outlets. Now, there have been any number of notable moments in the trial, um, but overall, not too many big surprises, either on the government side or the defense. Now, the heart of the government's case is really pretty simple. I think they're going to, you know, make it as simple as possible. Did the Oath Keepers attempt to obstruct the peaceful transfer of power by force or not? Now, for the defense, the defense attorneys are going to try to, you know, they've mapped out different defenses for different defendants, with the overall effect being a little bit like chaff, you know, reasonable doubt, that kind of thing. They actually seem to be at a bit of a disadvantage compared to the government, even though the burden of proof is on the government because they seem incapable of really presenting a unified defense, which probably would have helped them, uh, especially given the the really convincing evidence against these defendants. Now, it would take far too long to try to distill three weeks' worth of testimony down into a podcast, so I'm going to focus on some testimony that I think was critical and surprising. The testimony of Stuart Rhodes on November 7th. Now, it wasn't really a surprise in the sense that, you know, uh, we knew he was coming, right? He appeared on the witness list, and his attorneys declared that he would testify in their opening statements. What was surprising was just how devastating Rhodes' testimony seemed to have been for his own defense. As great a job as the prosecution team did in presenting their case in chief, I think this was really the Perry Mason moment in the courtroom when Catherine Roccozzi cross-examined Rhodes. Very much appreciative of the work of the whole team, but if I had to pick only one of them for the team prosecuting Trump, it would be Roccozzi. She absolutely ambushed Rhodes in a way that was so deliciously good, and did it again and again and again, and he just kept walking into the same thing over and over and over again. And the thing that she ambushed him with was, of course, Rhodes' own words. Rhodes' own statements that he made in Signal Chats and various other communications. I think this testimony would actually be a great case to use in law school as an example of why it's generally a bad idea for criminal defendants to take the stand. Whatever value there was for the defense in having Rhodes take the stand in his own case, It was completely undermined by his bumbling and perjury-laden testimony. Uh, Rukosi uh, appeared to be psychic at moments in that she knew not only that Rhodes would lie, but also came ready to refute those exact lies. She would ask a question such as, Did you say this? And Rhodes would deny ever having said that. And then she would produce a slide featuring a message or a chat with a comment that Rhodes had just denied uttering. And she did this over and over and over again. And Rhodes is basically trying to gaslight the jury. I don't think juries like that. Um, He's a gaslighting narcissist, and in the face of this, he didn't change his behavior one bit. That's what's fascinating, right? I mean... After she did it the first time, you think he would wise up. He'd figure out some way to staunch the bleeding. But he never did. He just kept lying and lying. And she just kept showing how he lied. Like, okay, Stuart, look. If she's asking you a question about this, it's because she has a slide ready to go showing that you said or did this thing. So, at least, you know, find a way to acknowledge what you actually did, right? And the jury got to see every bit of it, all of it. Now, she knew what lies he was going to tell, and she had her entire cross-examination crafted with slides with exactly the correct evidence. I would have loved to have seen this. All right, so I'm going to give uh, many examples of what happened, but that's, that's just my summation of the cross-examination of Elmer Stewart Rhodes. Um, obviously, I wasn't there, but going through in real time, I actually think that the cross-examination may have lasted uh, two or three times as long as his actual testimony in his old defense. So, just kind of staggering. Now, I think Rhodes wanted to testify, obviously. I mean, it's a circus. Uh, he wants to be the ringmaster, but in the end, I mean, he really proved himself to, to be a clown. He gives himself this self-serving history of the Oath Keepers, uh, and he left out some stuff, right? So his attorneys call him up, and he's, you know, talking about everything the Oath Keepers has ever done. Not really. Um, then with regard to January 6th, he, his attorneys elicit uh, responses to him uh about you know how, as I've mentioned many times before, he hoped that the president uh, President Trump would invoke the insurrection act and mobilize what Rhodes calls the unorganized militia, which by the way really does actually describe the at uh, this month, uh, which he describes as men between the ages of seventeen and forty five Rhodes had claimed during his testimony uh, questioning from his defense attorneys that he learned about January 6th on or about November December 22nd or 23rd, 2020, and claimed that the person who first contacted him was Bianca Gracia. I think we can put a pin in that data point for a moment, though, although I hadn't heard that before, so I thought that was a little interesting tidbit. Rhodes also testified that he didn't know about the QRFs, the Quick Reaction Force. had no idea that there were going to be QRFs Uh, in his testimony in the defense. He winds up contradicting that later on. He claimed that much of what he had said on January 6th and the before and after was just bombastic, just hyperbole, just just meaningless, right? Um, Which is kind of remarkable for someone who makes their living, you know, with words, right? Uh, both as an attorney and as the, the head of the Oath Keepers. Uh, you know, that's what he does. He should understand what words mean. But apparently, you know, he's using the, the Alex Jones defense. During his uh, questioning by his own defense attorneys, Rhodes also claimed that after the inauguration, he stopped talking about invoking the Insurrection Act. Which, well, of course, that's a rather obvious obvious thing to say. I mean, after the inauguration... The president who could actually invoke the inaugura- the Insurrection Act was Biden, not Trump. So, of course, he stopped talking about it, But he wants brownie points for stopping talking about the Insurrection Act after the inauguration of Joe Biden. Now, that's literally, you know, the whole summation of his testimony. He, you know, he talks about, well... Yeah, you know, we do all this disaster stuff, and again, very self-serving testimony about all the many fine things the Oath Keepers organization has done over the years. Now, after a few uh, quick questions from his co-defendants, uh, it's Racozy's turn, and the very first thing she does in her cross-examination is to draw into question Rhodes' claim that the Oath Keepers was formed in response to the excesses of the Bush administration by noting that the group was formed in April of 2009, shortly after Obama's inauguration. And Ricosi asks if the Oath Keepers was founded with, quote, a tone of forcible opposition to government, end quote, which Rose denies, right? So, okay, from the very beginning, were you an anti-government group? Rose, you know, it's like, no, no, we were an anti-government group. Um, She then turns to the 2014 Bundy Ranch standoff, which she characterized as an effort to, quote, help Cliven Bundy resist a court order, end quote. Again, she's establishing this groundwork that they, they have a history, right? And one of the history, part of their history is opposing the actions of government by force. Arguably, this is kind of a weak point here, because it just goes to show that maybe Rhodes should have been charged with sedition back then. But I digress. Uh, again, part of what is what Rhodes is, renders himself vulnerable to here, of course, is that this is a, a, a four-lane highway for the introduction of prior bad acts, and Rukosi is taking utter advantage of it, uh, and it's just wonderful. So Rhodes claims that uh, the Bundy Ranch standoff was done to prevent the Bundys from, quote, being waco a reference to the Branch Davidian Siege in 1993. So, okay. So, he's, you know, he's made up a thing that justifies him doing whatever he wants to do. Again, that's his pattern, right? There's some uh, chimera, some fantasy threat, and he just, you know, says, well, there's this, so therefore we have to show up with guns. That's Rhodes's answer to everything. Now, Rucosi then moves on to the various mining standoffs in 2015 and 2016, the sugar pine, the other ones, and the deployments of the Oath Keepers to the Berkeley protests in 2017. So again, this is a consistent pattern of the Oath Keepers opposing the government by force. Although Rhodes is claims in his testimony that he, quote, you know, we focus on deterrence, end quote. She brings up Ferguson, where the Oath Keepers brought rifles, despite the sheriff asking them not to. And Rhodes claims that it was wrong of the sheriff to ask them not to bring rifles. Now, this is extraordinary for someone who's affiliated with uh, Mr. Mack and his constitutional sheriff's uh, organization, right? You know, apparently he supports sheriffs as being, you know, sort of somehow... The highest constitutional authority in the land, except when they tell him to do things that he doesn't want to do, in which case he just ignores them. Um, she also elicits a response that Rhodes went to Ferguson to protect property, and Rhodes says, and life, right? He's there to protect life and property. And she follows this up with the, the question, that's the cover you need, right? And Rhodes denies this. Of course, this goes back to specific language that Rhodes uh, has used in the signal, uh, sorry, the go-to meeting, where he says that, you know, the Insurrection Act argument is all just cover, right? And all these other things, All what she's doing is establishing a pattern. So Rhodes wants to deploy the Oath Keepers with guns, and he comes up with some justification, pulled out of thin air, or perhaps from the uh, uh, Info Wars, and uses that as a justification to deploy the Oath Keepers and forcibly oppose the government. So that's the case that she built. She builds this pattern and says, this is what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about you having these fantasies and doing whatever you want and then opposing the government and then using your fantasies as justification, as legal cover. And so that's how she begins. Ricosi then refers to a statement from the Signal Chat in August of 2020 in which Rhodes writes, quote, when it comes to cracking heads, if you articulate that, you'll leave yourself exposed. Now, Rhodes says that, you know, well, it has to be legitimate, right? Legitimate cracking heads. But then Ricosi immediately knows uh, where to go, and she re- goes to a section in which Rhodes says, well, this is what got the, the Proud Boys in trouble, um, you know, that, quote, claiming that they're there to confront Antifa and BLM is setting yourselves up because, quote, there goes your self-defense line, end quote, right? And again, you know, it's hard to claim self-defense when you just, you know, you're going literally all the way across the country uh, to engage in these various activities. But yet, you know, once you get there, well, you know, you went out of your way to go there. You're not defending yourself. Um, Ricosi then shows video of the Oath Keepers who are armed in Ferguson and asks whether or not she thinks that they were doing more to inflame than to help, which Rhodes, of course, denies. And see, she then just hits play and, uh, shows video of that encounter and, uh, there's someone in the video telling them to go home because they are just inflaming the situation. So they heard that from people on the streets in Ferguson that they were unwanted. The sheriff told them that they were unwanted and that they were just potentially escalating things. She then asked about a 2018 incident in Florida in which oathkeepers were arrested for using a fake police car in response to Hurricane Michael. And Rhodes claims, no, no, uh, these weren't actual oathkeepers, merely volunteers wearing oathkeepers' Gear. She also asks Rhodes about uh, wearing helmets, about how he'd advise people to bring helmets. And Rhodes says, Well, this this is this is defensive, right? You wear helmets because it's defensive. And she then goes immediately to the November 9th go-to meeting tape, in which Rhodes says he likes to carry his helmet in Portland because he could hit people with it. He could hit him in the face with it. So, you know, again, going, and he, he just walks right into this stuff. It's like, no, no, that's actually a weapon. That's why you like to wear a helmet. Uh, she then asks Rhodes about how he told Zimmerman that they would dress up like old people to bait Antifa, right? And Rhodes says, no, that, that was misunderstood. Zimmerman misunderstood what I'd actually said. So, it's fake oath keepers. You misunderstood what I said. I'm defensive even if uh, I'm actually also in the same words describing my defensive posture as really being offensive in nature. So she's, she's got this pattern where Rhodes sets up some, some kind of bugbear to justify doing whatever he wants to do, no matter how improbable, uh, so long as he thinks there's a threat to someone he likes, he can do whatever he wants with the Oath Keepers. She then moves on to Biden, and, again, gets him to endorse conspiracy theories in open court, right? You know, this is your justification, Mr. I'm a constitutional scholar. The defense has put him up as this kind of constitutional expert. And she gets Rhodes to own the fact that he describes Biden and Harris as, quote, Chai puppets, Chinese communist puppets. On November 7th, 2020, Rhodes uh, made uh, this following comment to the old leadership chat. Quote, Answer must be to refuse to accept these imposters or their pretend legislation and to get your gear squared away and ready to fight. Another comment from the old leadership uh, sorry, the Friends of Stone chat same day, November seventh, 2020. Quote, The final defense is us and our rifles. End quote. So again, She establishes that Rhodes sees Biden and Harris as Chinese communist puppets, and that the answer is rifles, right? It's, uh, you know, old guys with rifles. Rukosi then introduces the Serbian patriot evidence, um, this, uh, diatribe that Rhodes was fond of using in the run-up to January 6th, where he has, you know, uh, Testimony from a Serbian patriot uh, about the end of uh, the Milosevic regime in Serbia. Um, And she presents this quote, a slide showing, quote, Millions gathered in our capital. There were no barricades strong enough to stop them, nor were the police determined enough to stop them. Quote, Police and military aligned with the people after a few hours of fistfight. Quote, we stormed the Parliament. So, that's a, that's a pretty interesting thing, right? Rhodes is circulating this Serbian Patriot commentary. What's the Serbian Patriot com- talking about? The people storming the capital. What did Rhodes have the Oath Keepers do, according to the government? They organized them into stacks and had them storm the capital. And the response from Rhodes here is uh, unintentionally kind of damning. Rhodes says, quote, I only meant this in the future context, not with respect to before the inauguration. End quote. Now, that's incredible, right? So, it's basically an admission of guilt on the stand. Because it's not just limited to January 6th. Remember, they're opposing the government by force before and after January 6th. So, Rukosi's done absolutely what she set out to do. She says that Rose is circulating this bit of propaganda from some Serbian who stormed the parliament, And now as Rhodes is saying, it has nothing to do with what we actually did on January 6th. Even though, of course, storming the legislative branch of government is exactly what they did on January 6th. That is one heck of a coincidence, right? One heck of a coincidence. Rhodes uh, just spends all his time telling self-serving and obvious lies to the jury and just assumes that they're not going to see right through them. Rhodes then turns to uh, what is, of course, my own personal favorite piece of evidence, the November 9th go-to-meeting audio, in which Rhodes claims, quote, We're very much in the same spot that the Founding Fathers were in, like, March 1775. Now, Patrick Henry was right. Nothing left to do but fight. Rhodes responds to this uh, evidence with, Well, yes, um, that's what I thought, but... Again, only if Trump invoked the Insurrection Act. Again, once again, he's trying to have this protective narrative that somehow violence would be okay if Trump authorized it. Ricosi follows up with, later you said, the need to be prepared, you need to be prepared to fight regardless of what Trump did. And that's true, right? In Signal Chase's, well, uh, sorry, the go to meeting, uh, he says, I don't think that we're going, you know, Trump won't do it. But we need to be able to do it regardless. And Rhodes agrees with it. So there goes this whole pretext, right? Because there's evidence that it's like, no, we've got you on tape saying that Insurrection Act or not, uh, we're going to oppose the government by force. And Rhodes agrees to it in open court. Okay, kind of a done deal. Rhodes also claims that the purpose of the QRF uh, at the November 14th event, the uh, the Million MAGA March event, was to prevent a Benghazi-style attack on the White House, which again, uh, consistent with the pattern of fantasies that he concocts, you know. We get to do whatever we want because of something I heard on Alex Jones. Ricosi then moves on to the Jericho March on December 20th, and Rhodes' effort to get Trump to declassify everything, uh, which you, you will remember uh, from the, the longest episode uh, that I've done, right? You know, Rhodes wants him to declassify everything. And uh, because he points out that Trump would actually have to you know, invoke the Insurrection Act to do declassification. Um, and Rhodes says, well, yes, but you know, he would need to do that to get the National Guard to seize the election equipment. I mean, absolutely bizarre, right? This constitutional scholar thinks that you can do this. uh, But bizarre. She then gets Rhodes to admit to yet another absurd conspiracy theory on the stand. Uh, Rhodes agrees with the claim that the aim of this declassification was that this data would expose CIA and NSA officials as pedophiles. End quote, right? Rhodes is like, yeah, yeah, that's that's what we were doing. Um, again, you know, you just basically making stuff up and then saying, well, yes, that's why we had to oppose the government by force. Rhodes also claimed that the electoral college vote, that the actual holding the electoral college vote on December 14th, 2020, was unconstitutional. And Ricosi points out, well, no, the, the Supreme Court heard challenges and they refused to hear the case. And Rhodes says... No, that, that's illegitimate, right? So, you know, those weren't real oath-keepers. This was just hyperbole. And yet, is this hyperbole, too? Right? You know, I mean, the Supreme Court is illegitimate. The Electoral College is unconstitutional. She then elicits a response from Rhodes where he, uh, he claims that Elaine Chow, Secretary Chow, uh, has ties to the Chinese Communist Party. Um, and so does Mitch McConnell. So, Biden and Harris, they're, they're Chai Con puppets. Elaine Chao, also a Chai Con puppet, somehow also a Trump appointee and not a Chai I don't know how he, he gets there, but, you know, basically he just believes whatever he wants to believe, even if it's utterly inconsistent with the other things that he believes. Um, and Mitch McConnell, also, you know, a Chinese communist puppet. So she's establishing that he believes crazy things that he uses to justify opposing the government force. Now, we also get uh, another bit of new evidence here, um, or at least new to me, uh, text from Rhodes to Kelly Sorrell, in which he calls for an open letter to the U.S. military. Quote, they won't fear us until we come with rifles in our hands. End quote. Now, Rokosi is doing this in order to undermine Rhodes's claim that the whole operation is contingent upon an invocation of the Insurrection Act. Uh, because again, you know, that's not the context, right? It says this is Rhodes's answer to everything, you know, back in Bundy Ridge, all that stuff. There's no talk about the insurrection out there. So, again, absolutely uh, absurd, you know. It's like, yeah, we just get to show up with, with rifles in our hands. Now, she then shows a bit of footage from Rhodes's interview uh, with the FBI. Uh, and Rhodes said, well, I didn't realize this was, well, it's a body-worn camera. Uh, so, uh, apparently, Rhodes hasn't been reviewing the discovery particularly closely, that else he would know that this evidence actually exists. Um, and Rhodes says, quote, By January, we knew there's a 0% chance he'd invoke the Insurrection Act, end quote. That's kind of incredible, right? FBI shows up, he's like, well... And, and he tells him, there's no chance that Trump was going to invoke the Insurrection Act. Your whole theory is dependent on Trump invoking the Insurrection Act. So, if you know he's not going to do it, game over, right? Your case is nonsense. It's, it was nonsense before. It's even more mooted. Now, to rebut his claim that he didn't intend to oppose the peaceful transfer of power, Rucosi then flips to a, a slide... Quoting a post by Rhodes in the old leadership chat that read, quote, On the 6th, they are going to put the final nail in the coffin of the Republic unless we fight our way out. With Trump, preferably, or without him, we have no choice. End quote. Again, Rhodes doesn't qualify that in any way. Doesn't say, well, if, you know, Insurrection Act is Insurrection Act. No, it's just we have to fight our way out, right? So he... She shows, I think, demonstrates very well to the jury that Rhodes is, you know, hammers and all, He is opposing the peaceful transfer of power by force, and he's absolutely determined to do this, and he made this determination that January 6th is the critical date. Rikosi also elicits a response that, quote, the buck stops with you, right? She's trying to say, Now, you're in overall control, you know, the buck stops with you, but Rhodes tries to weasel out of this. Uh, He wanted to claim that, quote, I'm not in charge when they go off-mission, when they do something off-mission. Now, this, by the way, it might be a bit of a digression, but I have to say that for someone who has dedicated his whole life to the proposition that militia are legitimate, this is pretty damning, because he's saying that his hand-picked crew, out of all the tens of thousands of people who belonged to the Oath Keepers over the years, this hand-picked crew of people, on the day of their most important mission, when they're supposedly there to save the Republic, they went off mission, right? This is a hell of an argument against his whole militia theory to begin with, right? And by the way, it's utterly consistent with the reason why we don't have private armies in this country. Because of this kind of stuff. Um, Personally, I don't buy it, right? I think he did order the stacks in. But whether or not he actually gives the order, that's kind of immaterial. He put the team in place. He brought the people there to oppose a peaceful transfer of power. And whoever made the ultimate decision to go into the Capitol, nonetheless, that's what most of them did. So, you know... Nonetheless, again, he's always talking about how disciplined and professional they are, how they have a quiet and professional demeanor, Um, but somehow, you know, he's an overall command, he's George Washington, unless they go off-mission. If you're George Washington, they don't go off-mission. Anyway, you know, his claim that they went off-mission is just very, very convenient for him at this point. I don't believe you. In the words of Ron Burgundy, So, this cross-examination, already devastating for Rhodes, gets even worse Uh, when they get to the events of January 6th. Bracozzi points out that Rhodes had a phone call from Green, Whip Whip Green slash Michael Simmons, telling him that they were storming the Capitol. Uh, Rhodes responds by recalling that he asked Green who they was. Uh, were, and Green responds that it's Trump supporters. Uh, Rhodes, I mean, again, he, he actually gave that part of a uh, up, uh, unsolicited, he remembers the conversation and I believe recalls it truthfully on the stand for once. Uh, Rucosi then notes that Rhodes's response to learning that Trump supporters were storming the Capitol was to walk to the restricted area, even though that he knew no event would be taking place in the area where he was supposed to be providing VIP security. This was, of course, Area 8. Um, I'll talk about this at some other time. I actually only recently realized that um, that was a document that came out before I did the podcast, and I kind of have always assumed it was old hat. Um, but permit for, for Area 8 uh, was basically a front group for Ali Alexander, and it had a very prominent list of people who were speaking. It was supposed to be permitted for 50 people. Of course, you know, that's not true, right? I mean, there, there were 20 people speaking, including members of Congress. It was never only going to be just 50 people. But the point is uh, that this event, which was signed off by Stephen Sund himself alone, uh, despite the fact that there's evidence in the record showing that this was clearly a front group for Ali Alexander, Um, you know, which really, uh, I'm so mad at Sund right now. Anyway, he's got a book coming out, people. Um, but he knows he can't go to Area 8. Or at least that there's not anything for him there at Area 8. Nonetheless, he heads off in that direction when he learns that Trump supporters are storming the Capitol. So, Rhodes then tells uh, his Oath Keepers to go to the Capitol. And Racozzi emphasizes that he tells him this despite the evident violence. Um, and Rhodes claims, well, I didn't see barricades. Again, if you've seen the pictures, the barricades were there. They were, you know, just because someone has torn them down and is using them to hit cops doesn't mean that there were no barricades, right? So it's a rather obvious lie. Rhodes is familiar with the rules. He knew that he was supposed to go to Area 8, and he knew that other areas were restricted grounds at this point. In any event, Rose, uh, Ricosi kind of actually lets that slide and uh, pushes him on to uh, the call that he makes uh, to summon the gangs uh, to the capital. Rhodes Ricosi asks Rhodes if he praised the attack, and Rhodes makes the following claim, quote, I said in historical context, this was no worse than things that happened during the revolution. Uh, I don't know how many, I didn't know at the time how many police had been hurt that day. End quote. Now, this is a point I think that Rokosi could have pushed back on. Um, At 2.07, there's actually a message in the chat saying, tear gas at the Capitol, several officers hurt. Right? So Rhodes already, presumably, you know, if he's paying attention to the chat, might have seen this. Because at two fifteen, Rhodes sends a message. I'm at the Supreme Court side of the Capitol. Where are you? So again, that's sort of the northeast corner of the Capitol. Um, Rhodes is trying to bring the gang all together. Now, Rhodes Ricohsi then gets Rhodes to insist yet again that he didn't order anyone to the Capitol. And he says, Yeah, no, I didn't order anyone to the Capitol. This time, instead of a slide, she's got a film montage. A film montage that actually tracks the locations of the Oath Keepers in and around the Capitol with timestamps on January 6th. And Rhodes concedes, yeah, that, that's, that's accurate. Ricosi then makes a point of noting that Rhodes spoke to Kelly Meggs from 2.32 to 2.33 p.m., so basically a 90-second phone call. Then, at 235, Megs leads stack one up the steps, which Rhodes claims he only learned about later, right? So, um, you know, just simply because something happens after something else isn't causal, but certainly causation tends to work that way, right? If I'm the commander of the Oath Keepers, and I talk to an Oathkeeper, and then a minute later, that Oathkeeper and the other people he's with do something, we can infer, you know, that, yeah, that's why he did that thing, right? You called him on the phone and said, go into the Capitol. Form yourself into a stack. Go into the Capitol. And Rucosi then says to Rhodes, and they breach the Capitol at 239? To which Rhodes responds, no, they walk in after others breach it, end quote. Well, again, absolutely ridiculous, right? So, he talks to Megs, 233. They form the SAC 235, uh, and they're in the Capitol by 239. But Rhodes doesn't want to count this as a breach because of course the Capitol has already been breached. They're just following it. I mean, what a load of horse hockey. And again, I don't think the jury is gonna find that particularly persuasive. So that's a you know, a bit of a kind of a sample of the inconsistent and obviously perjured testimony. That road's offered up. Just absolutely destroyed by Ricozy. Every instance, like, Well, did you you know, did you order them in the Capitol? No, well here you go. Here here you, you made a phone call. The very next thing they did was to form themselves into a stack and go into the Capitol. Here's the video showing where everybody was after you talked to them. She did an absolutely great job of getting him to say the things that she knew that he would say, and then immediately refuting them with slides of his own words or video evidence showing what actually happened. Um, Now, there were actually some moments where she did get him to be honest with the jury, right? Rucosy said, quote, You Oath Keepers were willing to take the steps to alter or abolish this government? Wrote, yes. I still hoped conflict could be avoided, but we have a government that steps outside the Constitution. It puts you in a bad place. Rucosy. You appoint yourself to take care of that? So, Rikosi is just showing, yeah, according to Rhodes, constitutional expert, some random guy uh, with a private army is the ultimate authority, right? The Supreme Court, that's illegitimate. Uh, You know, that meeting of the Electoral College, that's unconstitutional. The real authority is some guy with an eye patch who shot his own eye out uh, and has a private army. So it's pretty clear from Rhodes' own testimony that he's appointed himself the arbiter of what's constitutional, what elections are legitimate. And, you know, it's his opinion as a disbarred attorney that if things don't happen the way he expects them to, he reserves to himself the right to oppose the government by force. So Rhodes gets to tilt at these windmills that are summoned from his own feverish imagination, and use that to justify doing whatever he wants. And going through, I was just struck by the sheer number of things that Rhodes uses as a justification. The things that he's afraid of, right? That, you know, he's saying, oh, these things are absolutely real and true, and therefore I can do whatever I want. Um... A Waco-style fire at the Bundy Ranch. Antifa attacking Trump supporters in parking garages. A Benghazi-style attack at the White House. Pedophiles in the CIA and NSA. A biden harris chai-com puppet administration. Fake Oath Keepers who commit bad acts. Uh, BLM, always. Antifa, always. The Supreme Court, illegitimate. Mitch McConnell, Com puppet. Elaine Chao, Chicom puppet. So, you know, Rhodes is just missing the point here, right? The law does not care if you think lizard people are secretly running the government. You don't just get to cite conspiracy theories and then use them as justification for doing whatever you want, whenever you want, wherever you want. Now, remarkably, even seeing the government destroy Rhodes, I believe at this very moment, actually, uh, Jessica Watkins is, is, has taken the stand. So, I think that actually they might want they might wind up moving to jury deliberations a little bit later than I, I would have hoped. Thomas Caldwell also took the stand in his own defense. Um, now Caldwell's testimony went even worse, I think, than than Rhodes's. Uh, Caldwell had many of the most sort of seditious and inflammatory comments in, in the signal chat, and his typical response to questioning was to just say. Well, that's a movie reference, or or that's a joke. The government, again, they took him down point by point, right? By the way, if I make a joke, you know, uh, about threats to violence, it's a little bit more serious when I have 70 guns in my house, like Caldwell and his wife do, right? So Caldwell and his attorneys make a big deal about the fact that he's on pain medication, and he has some kind of disorder that causes him to, to poop his pants, well, guess what? That doesn't actually matter. Uh, there are sick inmates in prisons all across the country. Just because you're incontinent, you know, doesn't depend, right? I mean, the, you know, it's it's fine. You you can they have diapers in prison too. So these defense and these attorneys, these defendants, these attorneys, all trying to gaslight their way through this trial, and the defendants and their attorneys aren't smarter than the USA's, they're not smarter than Judge Maida, they're not smarter than the jury. Now, I was actually a little bit worried about the outcome of this trial during some of the pre-trial hearings. Um, The defendants, you know, I thought, might be able to turn this courtroom into a circus and use it to their advantage, but they didn't even accomplish that. Maida really set the ground rules and has done an excellent job maintaining good order in the courtroom. The defense itself uh, is actually pretty disjointed and sometimes incoherent, and you've got various people throwing them under the bus, right? Stuart Rhodes like, "Hey, see you guys, you guys are off mission, right?" He's throwing all of his co-defendants under the bus. He's um, got these other parts where they're like, "Well, you know, uh, you know, Harrelson. I didn't actually talk to Harrelson, or uh, you know, I don't actually know Caldwell at all. I mean, it for." <sighs> The jury to keep track of the various little cover stories that defendants are, are coming up with. It's going to be actually a lot harder for them to f- excuse this behavior than to just accept the government's case that yeah they were all in on together and they sought to oppose the peaceful transfer of power by force. So you know Rose wants them to believe this incredible thing that on the day of their most important mission, these handpicked cadre of oath keepers went off mission formed themselves into stacks, went inside the Capitol without his knowledge or approval. So, I don't find that plausible. Now, at this point, um, jury deliberations, when they actually occur sometime next week, I don't think it's going to take them terribly long. Uh, Depending on when they actually get started, they might return a verdict before Thanksgiving. That may be a little bit uh, too hopeful, but... If it takes longer than that, um, I don't think it's going to take uh, much longer. Assuming that, you know, there's not some loon Trump is told out scenario. That is that is also something that, that is concerning. So I think it's quite possible that we're going to get a, a verdict in this case before December. Now, will they find all defendants guilty of all charges? I don't know. I'm not sure. Uh, to be honest with you, uh, there there might be, you know, they might acquit some of them, of some of these charges. I don't know. We'll see. But I think that the case for Seditious Conspiracy is strong. I think the case against Rhodes himself, the leader, is particularly strong. You know, he wants to have it both ways. I'm in command, and yet they were off mission. I don't think the jury is going to buy that. And he's arrogant. Uh, He lied to a jury of his peers. And I think that the, uh, the prosecution was able to demonstrate that. So, one of the things that we might expect following the verdict, uh, which should be in a little over a week, is possible expansion of the case. Now, we still have the Proud Boys seditious conspiracy case to look forward to. That's the next big one. That, of course, is a trial of Enrique Terrio and Ethan Nortin, Dominic Bozzola, Joe Biggs, and Zach Real. Jury selection in that case begins... On December 5th. So that is going to be, of course, yet another uh, circus. I'll link to the docket in court listener in the show notes. Um, but, the, of course, again, you know, this is a different seditious conspiracy, right? Supposedly not involved. Except, of course, there is a link, right? So everyone remembers the under the garage meeting uh, that featured f- figures from both. The Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers on January 5th, 2021. So I bring it up here because almost everyone at that meeting has been arrested, right? The meeting between Rhodes, Terrio, Bianca Garcia, Gracia, I always want to say Garcia of Latinos for Trump, uh, Kelly Sorrell, uh, the Oath Keepers' general counsel, slash Stuart Rhodes' um, submissive girlfriend. Uh, Joshua Macias of Vets for Trump. Um, So all the, you know, I I mean Amy Harris. Amy Harris, photographer, uh, not, not, probably not going to get arrested. But, you know, you look at all the people who've been arrested, um, and a couple of them stand out, right? So there's Josh Macias. Now, Macias uh, was convicted. He was put on trial for a voter intimidation case. Uh... Uh, and weapons charges in Philadelphia along with his co-defendant Antonio Lamata, Both were uh, acquitted of the intimidation charge but uh, have been convicted of weapons charges uh, in October. So, they now face up to 18 months in prison and are due to be sentenced in December. But, as far as I you know, they haven't been charged in January 6th and similarly um, Bianca Gracia. Uh, this is someone who's going around the country on the uh, Reawaken America tour, right? I mean, you'll remember Clay Clark and his crazy whiteboard. That's who's behind this. So, she's someone who's still active in the movement and yet, as far as we can see, you know, she's meeting with Oath Keepers, Proud Boys, Rudy Giuliani, and so far no consequences. Which, you know, to my mind, hey, Maybe she's cooperating. That would be great. Although why she's still engaged in far-right activism, hard to say. Uh, or perhaps charges uh, might be coming in her case. So, yeah, Macias and Gracia, you know, hey, this is a perfect time, Eric Garland, right? So we don't know if they're going to extend the seditious conspiracy case. I've always thought that if they were going to start looking into people like Rudy Giuliani, Mike Flynn, Steve Bannon, this is where the link is. You make the link to the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, and you charge them that way. In other January Six news, it's been reported that staff members of the January 6th committee were informed last week that the committee's final report would focus largely on former President Donald Trump and much less on findings about failures by the FBI and other law enforcement agencies in the lead-up to the attack. Three sources familiar with the government's work, the committee's work, told NBC News. End quote. I'll link to the article in the show notes. This is a NBC News exclusive. Um, I'm sure that they have spoken to these sources. I'm not sure that this means what it says. If it does mean what, what it says, it is highly significant. Now, according to the article, the committee denies this, right? And so I've talked about all the different teams. So they'll be focusing on the work of the gold team, but admitting things like the work of the purple team, which focused on extremism in the U.S., uh, admitting things like the work of the green team, which I still think is extremely important, the work showing the financing of the insurrection, uh, to the extent that real billionaires are behind this. They need to face some consequences as well. And because... Donald Trump is involved, and there's finances involved. You know the crimes were committed because he can't uh, do anything apparently financial without committing crimes. Um, and of course, the work of the blue team, the team that was investigating the failure of police with regard to January 6th. In uh, unrelated note, Stephen Sund has a book coming out, uh, which I am interested in, and also, well. Uh, kind of, I don't want to say disgusted by, um. but he is someone who's always kind of, you know, talked a good fight about how these people are insurrectionists, but nonetheless is more culpable probably than anyone with regard to um, the failures on January 6th, right? So you look at all those, uh, the documents for the permits, you know, Sund is the one who signed off on it. He signed off on it alone. So, these are documents that were supposed to be co-signed because of vacancy. We're not. But, you know, he's authorizing uh, Ali Alexander and his One Nation Under God organization, front group, rather, to uh, hold an event in Area 8. You know, again, part of the the ruse that they used to surround the Capitol uh, with these phony front organizations so that they could, you know, somehow try to claim that they had some, you know, legitimate basis to be on capital grounds. Uh, you know, he signed off on that. And so, you know, apparently that's not a thing that we're interested in anymore. Um, now, again, the committee denies this. The committee says that this reporting is based on, quote, inaccurate and false information. Now, again, I've, I've largely held back in this podcast from criticizing federal law enforcement in no small part because of the heroism of the officers demonstrated on January 6th. However, you know, it's one thing for the committee to claim they're no longer working on, say, the Green Team, right? Okay, well, that's fine, but you still need to publish those results. Uh, You still need to look at the financing of the insurrection. Uh, This can't be a national security secret. This needs to be something that needs to be public knowledge. So, you know, okay... Great. The final report is going to focus on um, the the you know the ties to Donald Trump. Fine, I can understand. It's long, but on the other hand, uh, there you know needs to be accountability, and this needs to be. You know, we can't have another Warren Commission, right? Otherwise, conspiracy theories are going to go on for forever. The work of the committee, all the teams, needs to be produced. So. Now, in my mind, you know, if the report focuses narrowly on the culpability of Trump, then accompany it with a criminal referral, right? Make the criminal referral. You know, I'd be a lot more sanguine about the failure to include everything that the committee has done to date if it included a criminal referral. So, you know, but apparently, again, this story, uh, you know, is something I think we're going to hear a lot more on because I I don't think that the people who are doing this work are just going to shove it into a desk drawer, right? This is something that we're going to hear more about, one would hope. And if we don't, you know, I, for one, and hopefully many of you, uh, will be engaged with the committee to try to get this out into the public. Um, I don't think at this point that they mean this as a whitewash or a cover-up. On the other hand um if you're going to say or people are going to say privately well we're we were told that this isn't going to be included in the report we also need to know what's going to happen with this right so it stands stand the report is slated to come out in january the work of the committee is co- concluding it is authorized only of course for this congress and they would have to reauthorize it uh, the republicans are going to hold a narrow majority in the next congress so that's not going to happen. Could happen at the Senate level, but I think enough is enough, right? So, you know, the Senate might continue the investigation, but it's clear we need to move beyond investigating at the level of Congress and pass things off to Merrick Garland. So as it stands now, Liz Cheney uh, has stated in July that the committee had begun to share data with the Department of Justice But it's unknown, of course, what data and what parts of the cases have been shared with the Department of Justice. Um, I don't think that the need to push out this report should stand in the way of Merrick Garland deciding to charge Donald Trump in any of the cases where he faces criminal exposure. In other related news, the deadline for the testimony of Donald Trump uh, to speak before the committee has come and gone. So, the committee responded to this failure to comply to the, with the subpoena with this. Quote, Former President Trump has refused to comply with the secret, the select committee's subpoena requiring to him to appear for a deposition. His attorneys have made no attempt to negotiate an appearance, and his lawsuit parades out many of the same arguments that courts have rejected repeatedly. Donald Trump orchestrated the scheme to overturn a presidential election and block the transfer of power. He is obligated to provide answers to the American people. The committee will evaluate next steps in the litigation and regarding the former president's noncompliance. All right, well, I don't think there was ever any question that President Trump, a former President Trump, would ever actually comply with this. I'm sure the committee was under no illusions that he would uh, comply with an actual subpoena. Uh, It's a pattern that's been established throughout his entire life that he engages in litigation to draw out and delay. And I don't even think that Steve Bannon's sentence of four months for a contempt of Congress is going to deter, deter Trump either. I mean, even that, you know, Bannon is free while appealing his conviction, which is going to be heard by the D.C. Court of Appeals. So, Trump is, you know, going to extensively contest the subpoena, and, of course, you know, that's going to be moot, by the time January rolls around because the committee itself won't even exist anymore. Nonetheless, he is facing some other problems right now. So it's kind of been lost in the shuffle uh, with the news of the midterms and Trump's announcement that he's going to once again seek the nomination of the Republican Party for the presidency in 2024 is that the uh, RNC is no longer going to foot Trump's legal bills now that he's an announced candidate for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination, so the RNC has uh, reportedly paid any number of different figures. I've seen 1.7 million, I've seen 2.3 million. All that stops. So Trump has filed. You know, it, it, by the way, I mean this is this is a record, right? You, you don't file right after the midterms uh, for uh, to become the nominee of, of uh, party for president. Um, of course, why is he doing that? You know, it's not to get immunity from prosecution. The 60-day rule or the 90-day rule is, a, you know, that doesn't apply two years out from an election, right? So it has more to do, of course, with him drifting. He's going to continue, since he's a candidate, but he's probably not going to incur a lot of expenses. He just keep raising money and paying himself for things, you know. Uh, let's go to all these events and then stay at my hotels and have Secret Service stay at my hotels and have that money go directly into his pockets. So, you know, millions in legal bills, probably not, you know, in the calculation, uh, a small part of what he's going to be able to get out of being a candidate for the presidency. So in related news, uh, as of November 3rd, Cash Patel has been granted use immunity in the stolen documents case. So what does that mean? Well, Patel has publicly claimed to have personal knowledge of Trump waving a magic wand to declassify the stolen documents he kept in Mar-a-Lago. But in his initial grand jury testimony, Patel repeatedly invoked the Fifth Amendment. And so this gets around that. The use immunity says, that's no good, you still have to speak to this. So this is a case that is, along with the Fulton County case, the most fully developed of the criminal uh, possibilities that Donald Trump is facing at the current time. And I understand we are all impatient. I am extremely impatient. But there is a grand jury currently impaneled hearing evidence from witnesses. We know some of them, Cassidy Hutchinson has has talked to them, we know that Cash Patel now has been granted use immunity. And again, that means that they think he has evidence that will incriminate the president, former president. So, again, that is a highly significant development. And, you know, if there's an arrest of Donald Trump at any point in the future, uh, if he's going to get indicted, this looks like the route where that's going to occur first. All right, so speaking of elections, uh, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the midterms. Now, I had already offered my take on the midterms uh, back in season two, episode 11, midterm election fraud from last May. So, of course, when I said midterm election fraud, uh, you know, again, some people were confused about the title of that episode. The fraud, of course, would be in the fraudulent allegations of fraud. My belief was that. Uh, People would claim that there had been fraud in the midterm elections if Republicans didn't do as well as folks had hoped. And I pointed also to reasons at that time where I thought that Republicans wouldn't do as well as people had hoped. And in fact, there was a shining moment where it looked like the Democrats might retain control of both the Senate and the House. So, despite the narrative of doom and gloom that's been promoted in the media, uh, lost in the shuffle is the fact that you know they they were never saying, as as I pointed out in that episode, that the Senate map always favored Democrats. Republicans had twenty one Senate seats that they held up for election; Democrats only fourteen. And a lot of people make uh, a lot of the fact that the party, the incumbent uh, party, sorry, the the uh, House party of the incumbent party in the White House always loses seats in Congress during midterm of elections. Now, first off, that's an empirical regularity. That is not a fact, right? We saw that in 2002, for example, Bush gained seats in Congress. So, it's been known to happen. So, you get the media out there lying the whole time saying, well, this is inevitable. This is a historic fact. The red wave is coming. The only question is how big it's going to be. And Nobody mentioned uh, something that's well known to people who study Congress and congressional elections and political science, which is that the number of seats you're going to gain or lose in the Senate is heavily, heavily dependent upon what class is up for election and how many seats your party holds. And the more seats your party holds, the bigger the chance that you're going to lose seats. Uh, call it regression and mean, call it what you will. Uh, just there's more risk. If you have more seats up for election, and 21 uh, seats out of 35, that's a lot. Historically speaking, that is a lot. So that means there was always a better chance that Democrats were actually going to pick up seats in the Senate than lose them. So now, of course, we get the the, the various pundit people scrambling ever since the midterms to try to save their, their pet theories from falsification. And so politically, what we have now is a narrow Democratic majority in the Senate and a narrow Republican majority in the House. And of course, this means more gridlock. Now, hopefully, Reverend Warnock will win in Georgia uh, in the runoff election. In Georgia, they have a a law that basically says that if you don't win over 50% in the general election, the top two vote-getters will then have a runoff. So hopefully that will happen, uh, and the Senate majority will be a little bit more secure than it otherwise would have been. But nonetheless, whatever really happens, Republicans are going to have a narrow lead in the House, and this means that nothing will get done in D.C. for the next two years. Republicans are going to pronounce Biden a fatal, failed president, and then do their darndest to bring it about, right? just as they did when he was vice president during the Obama administration, just as they did during the Clinton administration. This is the playbook going back to, well, a very, very long time. So, to my mind, the biggest danger here uh, that we're going to face with the Republicans is government shutdown and debt reauthorization. Now, there's every chance that they will, in fact, crash the global economy if they don't get what they want. And also, so they can just blame that on Joe Biden. Right? Failure to authorize the U.S. national budget, have a government shut down for weeks and months, and then blame it on Joe Biden somehow. So that's what we have to look forward to. Oh, but nonetheless, the red wave didn't materialize. Now, one of the predictions that I'm, I'm rather happy to see, unhappy to see come true, uh, is the central prediction of the midterm election fraud episode. In the races where Republicans lost, they are in fact actually making unsubstantiated claims of fraud but not all of them right so you know election denialism is now thanks to trump and the republican party uh, a regular feature of the 2020 of and you know from the 2020 presidential race onward it's going to become a regular feature of our politics um i was actually surprised though that it, it wasn't universal i had just expected that every republican is just now from now on going to deny it when they lose. But that didn't happen. Um, Nonetheless, there were some notable instances. Carrie Lake, for example, has refused to concede, as of this recording, to Katie Hobbs in Arizona. Um, Shockingly, Doug Mastriano, major January 6th figure, uh, did concede to Josh Shapiro in Pennsylvania just five days after the election. So that was honestly better than I would have expected from someone like Mastriano, who's as extreme as they come. Now, there's been a fair amount of commentary on how generational politics played in the midterms, uh, much of which I, has been accurate, much of which I agree with. Generation Z is the most diverse generation in U.S. history, and they are replacing older, whiter voters in the electorate. Uh, funny thing is that, you know, well, with the, your Great Replacement Theory, yes, it's a racist theory, but also uh, it is, in fact, a you know, there's a demographic trend that has been going on for a very long time. Now, there are some people who are kind of Pollyannish about this, and they believe that demographic change is going to, uh, per, you know, enable something like a permanent majority. Um, that's not true. Many of the people who predicted that have been proven wrong uh, for a rather long time. Nonetheless, you know, I, I don't want to lump everyone together in a situ- describing generational politics and our current political movement, But we're in a transition from politics that's been dominated by the baby-droom generation for 50 years. Uh, For conservatives, you know, they've based their their entire electoral appeal on an older, whiter constituency. Um, But it's all downhill from here for them. Their, Their electorate is not going to be older. Well, it's going to be older. But there aren't going to be as many old white people in it as there have been compared to the number of younger people who again more diverse and that's part of it we talk about gener, you know uh, talk about Gen Z in a vacuum. You have to remember that it is a, a much more diverse generation, which accounts for some of the effects when we observe trends about how they vote. Now what part of the, the, the story Um, that has really gained traction with regard to the midterm outcomes and the failed red wave, is that Trump selected bad candidates. Uh, People like Herschel Walker, who uh, is just kind of walking proof that CTE is a very serious thing. The NFL should really be held to account for giving us people like Herschel Walker, uh, who just is kind of a walking disaster. Um, Part of what I think has also happened, though, is, is kind of flown under the radar is that these, these bad candidates are also, many times, carpetbaggers. Uh, these are people who basically, like Mehmet Oz, had lived somewhere else and then were just kind of uh, shipped to a district or a state where they were needed and, and they ran. Um, authenticity and lo- local knowledge actually count for a lot in politics. Now, in the last episode, I described how that happened a little bit here in North Carolina, uh, where there's a bit of a prearranged district shuffle between some Trumpist candidates uh, here in the Piedmont uh, with election denier Courtney Geels moving to the 4th District from the 13th District to make way for Trump-selected former North Carolina state wide receiver 27-year-old Bo Hines, in the 13th district. I was very pleased to, to note that uh, Bo Hines, who only moved to his district, uh, I think um, a month before declaring, uh, lost that district in a race that was not on the, the radar uh, for most people. But I suspect, again, that many of these underperforming Republican candidates, why didn't you get to 40? Well, you know, that, and they get 40, that's like the number that many people were predicting Republicans would pick up, it's because they, not just these were bad candidates, but these weren't even candidates who were from their district, right? Bo Hines isn't from the 13th district. Uh, He was just slotted in there. And when you're in a situation where every vote is important, authenticity is going to matter. I think that, you know, Mehmet Oz probably... Uh, You know, it wasn't just a terrible candidate. I mean, he's, he's actually charismatic, he's a good TV doctor or whatever. He sells fake stuff. But in the end, the fact he's from New Jersey probably made a difference in Pennsylvania. And I suspect that this made a difference in a lot of these house races as well. It was just too transparent. The shuffle that they did in house races where they were recruiting people, but they weren't necessarily even from the right district. And as a consequence, there's a, a price to be paid at the polls. And, it, you know, again, it's not just because D- Donald Trump likes bad candidates. He likes winners. And to him, was a winner? A winner is a celebrity. So he picked people who were celebrities. He endorsed them in the primaries. That got them through the primary. But in the end, it wasn't enough to get them across the finish line, especially because they had this sort of aura of inauthent- inauthenticity. Um... And I think a lot of the story that we're concocting right now, that people are seeing, kind of underestimates the closeness of this election. Right? I mean, the, the one thing that you can see, you know, even with all the state pickups at the gubernatorial level, um, a lot of the races that Democrats wound up winning were close races, and that's what makes a difference. You'll win the close ones, and ultimately, you know, can't say was well, any one things. Did Dobbs play a role? Yeah. Uh, Did January 6th and the committee hearings play a role? I I think yes. And a lot of people are like, no, it wasn't on this, you know, artificial list of issues that that we made up to present to voters. But in the end, I think it probably did. Now, when we look at overall turnout, uh, it was lower than in 2018. Now, I don't want to get too deep into the weeds on, on political activism, but whenever I have conversations with people as to how we allocate resources in terms of volunteers mainly in getting people out to vote, um, I'm always a base guy. What does that mean? I always think that what we need to do in every election is to turn out the base, the mobile. That is where that is a low-hanging fruit. the low hanging fruit. the easiest, most cost effective thing to do. I always say easy because it takes a lot of work is to increase the turnout of the people who are already likely to support you. Uh, The opposite of this, of course, is persuasion. People who think that you should really take the case to people who would vote for the opponent of the the candidate you support and try to persuade them. Now, I am almost always a base kind of guy, but here I do think that the results of this particular election may have been the result of persuasion. Turnout results were lower than in 2018, and I think that there may have been just enough Republicans and Republican-leaning independents who otherwise may have voted Republican in a midterm election, who's just said, you know what? I don't think so this time. I'm tired of this. I want to get back to normal. And the Republicans nominated some guy from out of state. They nominated somebody who's not even from my district. There's all these celebrities. There's people who got CTE who are just mumbling and ranting and therefore I'll give the Democrats a try. And when you look at the margins, uh, I think that there is a case to be made that that is where it was. And it is, this is an unusual thing for me to be saying because, you know, for decades, you know, whenever these these issues come up, I always say, look, we don't need to send people to that part of town you know, because we already haven't covered this part of town, right? Um, you know, you, you need to turn out your base. You don't need to necessarily take spend a lot of time and effort investing in people who probably, if anything, you run a risk of activating in the other direction. So this was, yes, it, you know, it was a base turnout election uh, as far as a midterm can go on the other hand uh, i think that in the end uh persuasion wound up being decisive i know that's an odd you know again well you're saying both things are true yes both more than one thing can be true at a time now we did have that the second highest youth turnout for a midterm ever and so we're we're now seeing a lot of the same people who had been saying there was going to be a red wave saying it was gen z well we knew it was going to be Gen z and guess what uh, millennials and Gen Z, you're going to see more of them. Because the way you need to think of voting is that this is a behavior that people age into. And it, you do it at a low rate when you're young. But as you get older, um, you wind up doing it more. Right? So that is the, the empirical pattern that we observe with every generation. And the, the base level of turnout for younger generations and the population it's not going to go down. So these generations, younger generations, are only going to vote at increasingly higher rates. At the same time, there's a lot more to be gained, right? So when we talk about higher youth turnout in a midterm election context. That means um, that 27% of under 30 voters voted. So you're going to see a lot of talk about Gen Z, and I think it's great. Uh, but just be aware that um, the returns only get better from here and that organizing efforts need to focus on younger voters. That's where the vote is, and there's a lot more of these votes that are out there uh, To if, as long as people put in the work. Um, overall turnout was 46.9%. If we had gotten marginally higher turnout, probably you know especially among younger voters under 30s democrats would have gotten control of the house would have retained control of the house um and they would have probably had a pretty safe margin but so there's a note of optimism yes we had a higher youth vote than we have had in every election except 2018 however uh we didn't achieve 2018 numbers and some of that is to do of course with the fact that um, you know, that was opposition to Donald Trump, and Donald Trump is gone now. So some of those people might be like, eh, all right, great, I can get back to my own life and watching football, football um, and you know, TikTok videos or, or whatever else, um, listening to my podcast. But, you know, again, this, just keep in perspective, right? Only 27% of under 30 voters actually voted. It's going to be different in 2024. Uh, in 2024... Um, you know, you can see a re-election of Biden or whoever winds up becoming the Democratic nominee. Um, I'm certain Biden's going to try for it, obviously. I mean, anyone who understands Joe Biden knows that he's wanted to be president his entire life and he's not going to just walk away from that as long as he is reasonably healthy. But I do want to give a, a, a shout out to all the people who volunteered and worked to help defeat the danger to democracy that is posed by uh, the Republican Party and uh, especially the election deniers. So, I mean, you saw a lot of Trump-endorsed election deniers wind up losing. You had Blake Masters uh, in Arizona, who was defeated by incumbent Senator Mark Kelly. Nevada, of course, I already mentioned, defeated by John Fetterman, despite the fact that the media kept playing up John Fetterman's Stroke, Mebadaz from New Jersey, TV doctor, quack, uh, snake oil salesman wound up losing. Adam Laxall, candidate from for Senate from Nevada, winds up losing to Catherine Cortez Masto. So, um, people like Doug Mastriana, right? Big, again, big January 6th guy. Uh, nominee for governor of Pennsylvania, defeated by Josh Shapiro, and actually conceded. So, you know, I don't want to say credit where credit is due, but that was actually surprising to me. Carrie Lake, um, candidate for governor of Arizona, defeated by Katie Hobbs. Um, you know, again, these margins are small, and I think in the end, some of it could have been people saying, you know what, I, I'm many, I may, might have voted Republican, I just can't bring myself to do it. Not with someone like this. People, they, they the media so promoted Carrie Lake because she's you know, a TV personality and she can talk in front of the camera. Nonetheless, at the end of the day, the margins weren't there for her. And uh, some of that, a big part of it was the crazy. I mean, interesting, I think if she'd run as a normal Republican, that may not be the path through the primary, but she probably could have won. So, uh, and of course, Lake, not yet conceding. Of course, uh, so you know again the new normal is Republicans hopefully losing elections, uh, and then refusing to concede. Um, you know it would be better if if they they accept the results. Nonetheless, I'm perfectly happy with them losing the elections. Tudor Dixon uh, also lost, defeated by incumbent Repu- Democratic Governor Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan. Great year for Democrats in Michigan. Um, Dixon lost by just over 10 points. So that, that's a result that I actually would have liked to have seen replicated elsewhere. Michigan, traditionally a Democratic state, um, has become more and more Republican. Maybe they are reverting to their, their natural state, one would hope. Um, also, their losses in key Secretary of State races for election deniers. And, uh, you know, when I teach this stuff, I normally talk about the Secretary of State as, yes, it's a statewide office and therefore important, but honestly, it's rather boring and unsexy. Traditionally, this has not been an interesting office. However, with uh, the Trumpist realization that you can use the Secretary of State's office to try to manipulate election results, uh, these elections have become far more important. So, Mark Fincham, Oath Keeper. Um, loses in Arizona, and is not conceding. Now, this is someone who's lost by over 100,000 votes. Um, But, you know, five points, right? About five points, a little less than that. Not conceding. So that's the new normal for the Republican Party. Jim Marshan in Nevada, also not conceding. So, you know what, if you ran for a Secretary of State and you lost and you're not conceding, good. You should have lost, because you don't understand how elections work and you don't have any faith in the process. And you're not inspiring voters to have any faith in the process either. Now, again, that race, not particularly close. Um, the margin stands at 25,000 votes, with 18,000 left to be counted. Matt DePerno, Attorney General Candidate in Michigan, Um, lost by over 8 points. Nearly 400,000 votes. Uh, He actually did concede again, January 6th figure uh, Antrim County lawsuit, you know, so kind of a kook, but I guess 400,000 votes is enough to convince him that uh, his election loss was legitimate. Alright, so hopefully um, by the time I have the the next podcast up uh, we're going to be looking at um, who knows? Maybe an indictment of Donald Trump. That would be something that would be great to see. Perhaps some of these uh, the Department of Justice will decide that they're going to draw some of these other people into seditious conspiracy cases where uh, there are obvious connections. There are some obvious people that have yet to catch charges. Um, it's hard to say. But once the Oath Keepers case wraps up, they're They've got. They're going to have some great AUSA's out there who've got a little time on their hands, and they can take over some other case. In the meantime, we have the Proud Boys case to look forward to. Uh, the you know by far the worst, uh, the the most violent, and the most deeply involved in the attack to storm the Capitol. So we'll get to see those five defendants go through the process, and. I think that, you know, Judge Meta did a great job of keeping that courtroom from becoming a circus in the Oath Keepers case. I'm curious to see how that goes in the Proud Boys case. Thank you so much for listening. Enjoy your Thanksgiving. And uh, look forward to doing this again next time.